You're listening to Fusion Patrol, a listener-supported podcast. Each week, we take a single episode of a science fiction TV series, movie, or audio and overanalyze it to within an inch of its life. Welcome to the discussion. Hello and welcome to another episode of Fusion Patrol. I'm Eugene. And I am John. And tonight we are looking at the 1955 George Powell film, Conquest of Space. Synopsis. Tomorrow, or maybe the day after tomorrow, the wheel orbits a thousand miles from the Earth under the command of Colonel Sam Blood and Guts Merritt, co-designer of the station and overseer of construction on the spaceship being assembled nearby. His second-in-command is Captain Barney Puddin' and Custard Merritt, his son, pressed into service aboard the wheel for the last year against his wishes, and he denies his son's request for a transfer to Earthside. The colonel is a real jerk. <laughs> the ship is being assembled by a crack squad of six volunteers from all over the Earth. For the last year, they've lived a very structured life that involves only eating special space food and there is speculation amongst them that they will also crew the ship when it goes to the moon. They are sometimes referred to as incubator babies because of how rigorous their restrictions are. They are babysat by Sergeant Maloney, a longtime subordinate of the colonel. During assembly, one of the incubator babies, Roy, freezes up, unable to move a muscle, nearly causing a deadly accident with a high-voltage line. He is taken back to the wheel for medical examination. The colonel is given the news. Roy is perfectly fine. He just had a manifestation of space fatigue, a syndrome everyone in space gets. It manifests in many different ways, but in some cases, it can manifest in dangerous ways. This lockup is a warning sign of worse things to come. Roy will be perfectly fine as soon as he's back on Earth. Roy doesn't want to wash out of the program, but that night at dinner, the colonel subtly tells him he's a washout by having a steak dinner sent to him in the mess hall while the rest of the incubator babies eat pills. As I said, the colonel is a real jerk. Roy is not taking that well, but all is forgotten when the wheel encounters a meteor strike and rapid action by the colonel is required to right the station. Colonel's keeping a little secret, too. He's also suffering from space fatigue, but is self-medicating to keep himself on the job. The next day, Dr. Fenton arrives from Earth. He's the other co-designer of the wheel and also the designer of the spaceship. He meets with the colonel, and now the construction of the spaceship is complete. The colonel lets Fenton know of his misgivings about the design. And he built it, but he thinks it's ridiculous. It's got wings. They don't need wings to get to the moon. And it's got huge fuel tanks with far too much capacity for a trip to the moon. It's just a bad design for an intended trip to the moon. Not only is the colonel a jerk... But he's also an idiot, Fenton explains. Yesterday, we decided to skip going to the moon and head straight for Mars. You leave tomorrow. And by the way, you're a general now. <laughs> the general is totally against this idea. He thinks it's a callous and stupid decision and that he is risking the lives of the crew needlessly. Captain Merritt, who has gone behind his father's back and requested and received a transfer off the wheel, tears up his transfer orders to be the second-in-command on the flight to Mars. The crew will consist of two officers, the Merits, and three of the Incubator Babies. Next, the General informs the Incubator Babies of the mission tomorrow, and, despite it being a needless and dangerous voyage, he tells them 
Which three should volunteer for the mission? The three are Siegel, the electronics whiz, Fodor, the one with medical training, and Emoto, the geologist. Emoto begs to differ with the general. The mission's not needless. His own country, Japan, was once forced to war because of a lack of resources. He makes no excuses for that, but soon the entire world will be in a similar situation. They must locate new resources. The survival of mankind depends upon it. After that rousing speech, the three designated volunteers volunteer. The two remaining celebrate that they're going home in the morning. Maloney also volunteers for the mission to be with the general, but he is flatly rejected. He does not take that well. That night, during movie night, Earth interrupts the regularly scheduled 1950s musical interlude to announce to the world the mission to Mars, and also to provide exclusive airtime so that the five-man crew can hear from their loved ones back on Earth. Fodor hears from his saintly old mother that he's a good boy, virtually assuring his death on the mission. Siegel hears from his girlfriend back in Brooklyn, and inadvertently learns that she's been two-timing, and Emoto and the two Merits are apparently not loved by anyone back home. The launch goes off without a hitch, but then they discover a badly injured Maloney who has stowed away and was not properly secured for takeoff. Well, he's a member of the crew now, and he does serve a mean pill of tea. The general begins expressing doubts to his son about the mission. God gave us dominion over the four corners of the earth. Space is the domain of God. We're trespassing. His son counters. It can't be coincidence that when Earth is beginning to run out of resources, we develop the technology to find more resources everywhere. Surely that's God's plan? Mid-flight, the topside viewer jams and Siegel and Fodor are sent out to repair it, which they do. But as they are returning inside, the ship is taken by surprise from arrears by an asteroid. The general must make emergency maneuvers to save the ship. Siegel and Fodor, on the outside, survive the maneuvers, but a trail of small meteoroids in the asteroid's wake perforates and kills Fodor, his body being dragged behind the spaceship on his life rope. The general goes out, performs a service, commits the body to the deep. Months pass, and Mars looms larger on their screens. The general comments that both the planet and the blasphemy they are committing are getting bigger. As they get even closer, the general talks of blowing up the ship to prevent the transgression on God. This doesn't play well with Siegel, but when he mentions it to Mahoney, the general's unquestioningly staunch ally, he gets shot down. On landing approach to Mars, the general completely cracks and tries to crash the ship. Only Captain Merritt's swift actions wresting the controls from his father saves the ship and makes a successful landing. They begin the exploration of Mars, but almost immediately the general starts dumping the water supplies and tries to create a fuel explosion. His son tries to stop him, but in the struggle, the general's gun goes off, killing the general. Mahoney, only witnessing the last moments of the fight, thinks the captain murdered the general. Like the general before him, Mahoney is also an idiot. They need to spend a year on Mars before they can return to Earth, and without water, they're not likely to make it. Surveys of the planet turn up nothing, and by Christmas, things are bleak. When God proves himself with a Christmas miracle, snow, snow, that they quickly vacuum up into their water tanks. Now, they're going to make it. July comes, and they have a very narrow launch window. Unfortunately, a Marsquake tilts the craft to an unacceptable launch attitude. Some quick thinking on the captain's part saves the day by blasting holes into the Martian surface with the rocket engines. Impressed by the captain's heroism and resourcefulness, Mahoney concocts a tale about the general dying heroically as the man who conquered space, and they all agree it's a fitting way for General Merritt to be remembered 
as they head home to Earth. The end. Again, I've either forgotten this film or I haven't seen it. <laughs> now, I've seen this a few times over the years. I, I used to have a, uh, a DVD of it years and years and years ago that was like, oh, I don't know if it was like recorded off from a TV or what. It was horrible looking. It, it was pan and scan and uh, really washed out oh. colors. It's barely worth watching. And I also used to have the book that this was roof, uh, roughly based on, The Conquest based of on. Space, by uh, Willie Lay and uh, Chesley Bonstell. And yeah, that was a great book to read as a um, a kid because it had all these 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 cool giant winged spacecraft flying around and all these uh, very uh, accurate for the time looking spacecrafts in orbit around the Earth assembling other spacecraft and uh, it was just great and, and there was quite a bit of you know for the time very accurate information about how we go to the moon and stuff like that you know courtesy of Werner von Braun and and mm-hmm. all the other early uh, visionaries of manned space flight. I including, hunted all, all uh, around. Including mine. Yeah. Oh yeah, yeah. He was a, a great science fiction writer and uh, uh, and uh, right. very tuned into the whole space conquest or uh, <laughs> the conquest of space. Yes, the whole space yeah. program. Yeah. The the conquest of space book, however, is as does not have a fictional story about. No. No, that's more of a documentary. It's like, yeah. this is how space will be conquered. Uh, I believe large portions of it ran in Collier's Magazine, which was like oh. a, I believe it was a monthly oversized magazine like Life or, um, you know, that sort of thing that came out to basically tell people what was going on in the world. Uh-huh. And um, in the 50s and I think the 60s, they had a big... Uh, Lots of space flight was was featured in that because it was a you know big eye catcher. Hmm. I'm sure I have seen the book Conquest of Space as well. I don't think I ever had a copy of it, but that I'm sure I've I've seen. So it was a, a very very long time ago. You know, it's yeah, one yeah. of those. I uh, what did you think of the movie itself? Well, um, you know, if I would have seen this as a kid in the fifties, I definitely would be a lot older to- now. Yes, I would. Uh, and probably been really confused by all this computer stuff. Uh, and wondering why we don't have uh, uh, gauges and vacuum tubes running everything. <laughs> you know. Yeah, I probably would have gone into aerospace as a career of some form. Uh, because it was definitely uh, uh, very, uh, and I use this in quote, informative movie. <laughs> or Nowadays, inspirational, perhaps. Inspiration, yeah. there you go. Very inspirational. Um, it, it, nowadays, unfortunately, if you're watching the movie, the use of just way, way too much exposition with, it's like, oh, what are these? Well, these are pills that have all of the nutrients that we would need to survive for the day yeah. and that sort of stuff. Just, it, it just gets hammered into your skull every time that it's a little hard. Yeah. But every third line is describing what they're doing. You know, even being off by one second could mean life and death in space. Really? Oh yeah, yeah. Ah, you know, I, I'll I'll just go right to the the part that really amazes me. This is a 1955 American film. Yep. And the villain of the piece is a crackpot <laughs> wackaloon religious nut job. Yes, a religious I love it. I love that. 
like religious fanaticism is definitely gonna screw up everything. I mean, I'm pretty sure it screwed up our space program already because it screwed up everything else in the world and retarded us. We could, we could be, you know, we could be out there by now if it weren't for that kind of stuff. But, uh, you know, it's 1950s. It's America. That's hard. That's a hard sell. So obviously they had to make a good case that says, no, no, God's good. Look, he gave them snow on Christmas Day. Right. I mean, exactly. You, you, yeah. They still have to put their positive religious message in there. And that. And that speech by the son saying it can't be a coincidence that when the earth is running out of materials, we come up with a way to get more materials. It's like, no, that's not a coincidence. That's we're running out of materials and we put <laughs> our brain to it and we solve this problem. No God needed. <laughs> well, you have to remember the message is, is just that being a religious a religious zealot is is bad, but religion is still good. It's something you have yeah. to have, you know, or else. Or you'll get space fatigue. <laughs> space madness. Yes. Yes. Yeah. That... Um, so some of the things that, you know, why would you need to go into aerospace after seeing this film? Well, you have to do this to be a TV repairman and volunteer. No, that's what you do after you get all the training. You become oh, a TV repairman see... after that. But you heard you heard them say, Siegel, you've got the least education of anybody here. They're all oh, like yeah. grunts. And I mean, yes, okay, Emoto and Fodor have some college there, but it's it's the I I enjoyed the film. And I you know, and I watching it and I'm like, you know, this is a in terms of the technical aspects, mm -hmm. I understand that this is, you know, state of the time, state of the art thinking. Yep, on how it might work. But the story that they've weaved into it yeah. with some uh, of the weird uh. conventions like, hey, you build it, and guess what? You're going to fly it, too. Bet you didn't know that when you volunteered to build this. Yeah, so no kidding. They, they're literally, half of them were thinking, oh, I mean, we're not going to, they're not sending us on this, are they? I mean, we're just building it. Like, yep. yes. Absolutely, I would not expect the builders to go on the mission, but in this universe... Well, you know, it was a simpler time back then. And six guys built that ship, apparently. Yeah, exactly. And I don't know what the rest of the four dozen uh, crew members on the wheel did in their, their day. File Space observation. Or something? Space paperwork. observation. Yeah. They looked at stuff, exactly. Um, they're protecting America's frontiers. Obviously... Yeah. It didn't do too many drills on what happens if you get holed by rocks flying at you <laughs> at high speeds. There's a bit in there where they, uh, the space station gets hit by meteorites and, and gets knocked off axis. Well, you know, I thought that was an odd. Obviously, they're all in the mess hall and they're flung around. So yeah. hey, what are you going to do? You're, you're in the mess hall and you're going to get flung around. The general did right the ship. He was the man in the right spot, and he did do the thing. I'm not, I'm not saying there should have been more people maybe manning the bridge or whatever, but it seemed like it was a fairly well routine. Uh, routine is not the right word. <laughs> rehearsed procedure. I mean, he kept calm. He knew what to do. He did it. I don't know if the guys in the mess hall would have done that, but you know, there were guys that were immediately in in pressure suits. They were applying patches. They were fixing yeah, okay. the ship. Maybe I just too harsh they, on the guys they, in the uh, mess hall then. Yeah. I mean, doggone, they were having a turkey dinner for crying out loud. 
and pills. Oh, uh, yeah. Um, my stuff is in no particular order, so I'm just going to say, I can't even repeat the words that I have down here, but the co- the general is a cold, cold person. Oh, yeah. I mean, the bit with his son at the beginning. Yep. And he's he's got him on the wheel because he made a promise to him when he was a little kid. It's like, uh, yeah. And the kid that... doesn't even know he made the promise to him. Exactly. Wow. You know? And then poor Roy. I mean, for crying out loud, at least have the freaking decency to call him into your office and talk to oh. him man to man. Don't send yeah. him a damn steak dinner. That was just, that was beyond cold. I just watched that going, oh, oh. Yeah. How? What? Yeah, that was, In what that world was would you think rough. that was right? Wow. It's like, they didn't even ask him how he liked his steak done. Yeah. <laughs> You know, I mean, you might like it medium rare. That was well done. Crying out loud. And mushrooms. Don't ever put mushrooms on my steak. No. Black (laughs) pepper sauce, sure. Mushrooms, (laughs) not. Yeah. Yeah. That that was just rude of him. Yeah. So we're in the mess hall. Let's talk about the food. When he said there was no waste, do you think there was no food waste or do you think there was no poo? Uh, being as it was the fifties, I'd say that there was no food waste. Okay. I would, I, I, I would guess that, that the, the pills are designed to result in a low residue diet, as they like to call it. So <laughs> another pill, literally. Yeah, well, yeah, yeah, pretty much, <laughs> you know, maybe in a week. I don't know. Rabbit pellets. <laughs> pretty much. They come out square. We don't know why. So <laughs> you wombat. <laughs> what? <laughs> Very good. <laughs> they had. Uh, I know my poo shapes. You know, wombats is cubed. <laughs> <laughs> so it won't roll down a hill and, you know. That's right. Put it on rocks. It stays there. They could build things from it. That's what the, well, uh, mark your that's territory. That's what the people did. You could build exactly. igloos from it. Poo glues. <laughs> Yum. Uh, yeah. Uh, keeps the sun off. Keeps the sun that's, off. That's true. Um, so... I wrote down everything I could find on the foods. They had, and I'll start with the logical stuff first, potatoes, chicken pie, although I'm going to ask about chicken pie, roast beef, pie, spinach, corned beef. Those are the food items. Now, I I raised the question of the chicken pie. Uh You've you've made a food like roast beef, and presumably, I don't know, does it taste like roast beef? Do they chew the pill? It looked to me like they swallowed the pill. How would they taste the pill if they just swallow the pill? Is it is it roast beef burps afterwards? <laughs> oh, that be. was a good roast beef. Oh, I, I'm guessing that the props that they used, um, probably if you chewed them up, the actors would just involuntarily make horrible faces. So they just swallowed them. Yeah. Chicken. Yeah, the subtleties of chicken pie. Now, now totally we're talking about a recipe. Pills. Yeah, <laughs> it's like even if you could taste it, it's like the point of chicken pie is that you get the nice flaky crust and the different right. flavor yeah, of the well. chicken and whatnot, and maybe gravy on the top of it for some people. It's like let's just put that in a blender, pop it in a pill, and then swallow it. With. Yep, that's it. That's all they are. That's all those were. And clearly they tasted it because Emoto took one and goes, hey, I think this one's corned beef. It's like, why did you not look at the 
very nice labeling, the ISO 5000 or whatever it is, labeling on the <laughs> 9000. ISO 9000. 9000, yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. Was, yeah, I think so. Yeah, we'll call it that anyways. Yeah. So, so, so some key listener can correct us. Like, oh, no, they don't do the labeling. That's not in the... All right, you know. And it's ISO 9800. Yeah. Yes. But now we get to the weird one. Toss me a coffee. <laughs> yeah. And sugar. <laughs> Two different pills. Well, maybe you just want to eat the sugar pills. I mean... That's what I was wondering. It's just candy. And you cream grab a handful pills. And... Yeah, and cream. Well, you know, sugar and, and cream, cream is also like getting ice cream. You, just, you sure. have to swallow all three of them at once to get the effect. Um, yeah, that's it. Well, maybe that's it. Maybe they're they're so high tech that as you swallow them, uh, as they're dissolved in your stomach, it you taste it in your mouth. So it's like and you're that's eating. The yeah, yeah. <laughs> but not even that. It just it goes through your bloodstream and and you can taste it. But the coffee pill was the same size as the sugar pill and the cream pill. Uh-huh. Now, I'm no coffee expert, but I don't think you use equal quantities of those three items when you're making a cup of coffee. I mean, I can understand using 99% cream and 1% coffee because that would be a huge improvement. But yeah, it is just it's like, and I like my, I like, I like two sugars in mine. <laughs> that was one of those tropes back then where you could, uh, you know, in the future, all food would just be a little handful of pellets, and 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 you eat them, and you're you're set for the day. Nope. Well, if you if you Doesn't recall, work. in Quark, the short-lived TV series, <laughs> uh, when they they dress formally for dinner, go down to the mess hall, sit at the table, and then tubes come down with a <laughs> like a muzzle over it. They put it over their mouth. And then a giant horse pill comes down and <laughs> yes. plunks right through the clear tube and plunks into their mouth. And they're like, ah, oh, that was a good ingestion. Yep. That, so, I mean, that was running well into the 70s uh, on the uh, the food pill thing. But, I, you know, I could see Buck Henry well, you know, remembering that from his childhood. Yeah. 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 Repeat the Jetsons. Yeah, yeah. We'll keep that one alive. Oh, I had to push buttons to make this meal. Oh, yeah. Hey, I hurt my finger. Oh, the pushing it. <laughs> now, to a more serious matter. So what's more serious than pelletized food? How can the, we'll just use general. How could the general, who is apparently technically savvy enough to help co-design the wheel, be so stupid as to build the spaceship, which is imaginatively entitled Spaceship, <laughs> and not realize it's not a moon craft? I have no idea. It's like that, that, yeah. And not know it until the day before it launches. Cough. Yeah, that's, we'd have told you earlier, but we only made the decision yesterday. If, if, if I was on a team that was doing something like that, we found out that our, our week long trip was now going to be, oh, I don't know, months, eight to 12 months. Maybe. I would say, uh, I don't think it's going to launch tomorrow. As much as you want it to, we need to review what's in it. <laughs> oh, no, don't worry. I mean, We've we're we like all the plans for of, you. We might run out we of pulled an all-nighter. chicken pot pie pills. Well, I just happen to have a bunch in my bag that I brought up from Earth. Here you go. <laughs> yeah, Drop here's up. your provisions. Plus, we got a couple of special ones for you. Here's a Christmas dinner. <laughs> yeah, because... We, we, 
Because not only are you going to Mars tomorrow for eight months, you're going to live there for a year. <laughs> then come back in eight months. Now, I, I'm pulling that eight-month number. I don't recall that from the show. But in reading some of the other stuff about Conquest of Space, yeah, I ran across that number twice. And it was an eight-month yeah. journey. Yeah, there wasn't mentioned in the movie, which I kind of found annoying. Yeah, one of the many little bits and pieces of the film that could have been fixed that would have helped, but oh well. I also like I like the fact that when they get there, Siegel doesn't know they have to stay for a year. Oh yeah. I wouldn't have volunteered then. Hell it. There's only so much time that you could spend on a planet with Siegel and have him doing the uh the who's on first routine because he's a living Lou Costello uh uh imitator. Uh yeah. Like wow. That this is so they're volunteers. They didn't know they were for sure that they were even going to be the crew. They built the ship by hand <laughs> themselves. And tomorrow we're flying, not to the moon, to Mars for it's three a years. A plan that has success written all over it. It does. It does. And we're not even going to have the, the uh, general checked up medically to see that he's suffering from space Oh, yeah. Fatigue. No. No. A, a guy who's... who's uh older than the guy that he said was 20 years too old to go on the sh- the the crew. Yeah, but there's a difference between the two of them. The yeah, general one's, is an one's officer. General. Exactly. And the other was just a sergeant who, you know, has been in the military for, what, 20 or 30 years with the general and hasn't made it past sergeant. Yeah, that's kind of... Uh, I, I know that there are some, you know, fine career sergeants, and they do quite a bit and get a lot done, but... Uh, yeah, it sounds like they keep getting paid more. I would think so. With you know more hashes on your sleeve, you, know, you get more pay. Essentially, he's been the colonel that now generals batsman for decades. <laughs> yeah, yeah. He was a captain back when the, the captain was born. Mm-hmm. So he's been the, and that's got to be twenty five, thirty years. His son yeah. wasn't a young man. No. <laughs> How about that nineteen fifties obligatory? song and dance number <laughs> in the middle of the film. I didn't think they could work one of those in there. But well, uh, you know, you, you have to show the uh the Don, the guys Don, in the did. space space station are just like the uh the troops back in in World War II when they were stationed somewhere where their rest and relaxation is watching a, a movie from home. Yeah, I mean, I'm it's not so much that that I'm that I'm referring to though. If you go back into the 30s, Mm-hmm. You are hard pressed to find too many films that don't stop for a song and dance number. You know, Charlie Chan walks into a nightclub, and then we have to spend ten minutes listening to the singer do the routine with the the band. You know, it 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 was a it was a common feature of films of the era to have that song and dance in it for the entertainment purposes of the people who went to the theater. It yeah. was just kind oh, of yeah. like. Like, you know, and yeah, they kind of got away have... from that after the 40s. I, this is the latest one I've seen, but when that popped up on the screen, I thought they can't seriously be doing <laughs> a yes. 1930s song. And they are, they are, absolutely yep. they are. Apparently on Earth's one TV station. Well, the only one that they get up in the uh, the wheel. It could be, maybe that's it. <clears throat> He did say we're going to block off the channel now. We're going to end transmission tonight, right in the middle of the movie, for the rest of the people, so that we can uh, 
say farewell to the those brave astronauts, we managed to get two out of five of their family to talk to them. Yeah, what about the other guys? Jeez. I know, oh, well. Mono has no one who loves him. And uh, we know that Merritt's got a wife and that Merritt's got a wife. They both have wives. And right. neither of them bothered. So at this point, it's like, no, what's the point? <laughs> what's the point? These uh, <laughs> guys are, they're gone to us. They're they are lost. And yeah, Fodor's was so bad. Oh, I'm your sole mother, and I know you're a good boy, and you're going to do well. And it's like, it's like, wow, just sign his death warrant. Jeez, <laughs> this, you could, you couldn't be doing it worse if you were a cop. You know, you're saying, I know you're going to be retiring on the, the day after this mission is over, so you yes. know, be a good boy. Yep. Like, good way and to I was upset because it was that was Ross Martin of Wild Wild West fame, and I was really rooting for him to make it through. Because he was always my favorite character on, on Wild Wild West. But, and I was like, oh man, he's dead. <laughs> they couldn't kill Siegel? Siegel I want to see dead. Maloney I want to see dead. I thought Maloney was going to have to sacrifice his life to save the captain at the last moment and rescue the crew or something. But, no. Yeah, one would have hoped, but nope. How about Sydney? Do you remember Sydney? Sydney. Sydney was the guy off camera talking to Rosie. Come on, Rosie, we gotta go. Oh, yeah. Wow. I mean, that's as bad, that's as callous and as bad as the general sending food to Roy at the table. Yes. It's like, you couldn't shut up for one more minute. You, you know what she's doing. You can see what she's doing. She's talking to a guy that she's pretending to be in love with. Yep. And you can't shut up. It's like, dude, we got tickets for the cinema. We got to get going or whatever the heck he was doing off to the side. It's like, I got a cab waiting outside. The meat is running. I can't afford this, Rosie. <laughs> Come on. Yeah. That's uh, about as stereotypical as you can get. It yeah, really, yeah. It really was. I mean, she was out of his league, but still. True. If anybody ever says this movie is well-written, they haven't seen the movie. <laughs> no, there's definitely some uh, there's definitely some problems uh, in the uh, 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 script department. <laughs> script department. Yes. And, you know, even if it is a movie shot in 1955, it's just, it's, yeah, pretty thin. Pretty thin. You know, Ver Werner von Braun was also a consultant on this film. He was yeah. on the set at times. So you had Wiley, uh, Lay, and and Bonestell, and I think it's Bonestell, I'm not sure. Uh, pronunciation. Bonestell? Bonestell. Bonestell, okay. Uh, and, and Von Braun. And I guess the rockety stuff is all right. I mean, they've got the space, the wheel. They've got artificial gravity by spinning the wheel. They uh, They... They acknowledge the fact, not in dialogue necessarily, but if they go to the ship, they got no gravity. Right. You know, I mean, they, they got all that kind of that kind of stuff right. And then they arrive on Mars. They've got spacesuits, but they don't use them. <laughs> and in fact, Emoto, what is the first thing he does? Takes right. off his glove, sticks yeah. it in the hand, in the ground. In the ground, yeah, and messing around with the dirt. 
Yeah, I thought that it was... doesn't even taste it. Well, I, th- I think the uh, I think the general general consensus was is that Mars was going to have an atmosphere sometime, and it sure it may it may be carbon dioxide for all we know. So to make it more spacey, you have to wear a uh, you know some sort of a light pressure suit or something like that just to keep oxygen flowing in your veins. Um, but yeah, having their bare hands like that is just that really killed killed it quite a bit. It's like, oh man, can you make that cheaper, please? So yeah, he pulls up a handful of sand or dirt soil. Let's call it soil. It's not sure. it should be regolith, but, <laughs> but almost, yeah, almost soil. And um like you say he doesn't taste it. He just kinda hefts it in his hand and says, You know, I'm convinced this soil could grow stuff. Just give him water. This is good stuff. How how did you do that analysis of what's in there? Is it just you know? It's like I, I've got farmer in my, I got farmer in my veins, and that that's good growing soil. Yep, I I certainly hope that they were able to retrieve the samples and get them into the ship before they had to take off real fast. Because oh yeah, that's a good point. I don't think they pity. did. I, I have a feeling they did that they got zero samples on board the spacecraft, and in that respect, the mission was a complete failure. Absolute failure. Yep. An absolute failure. Um, except, you know, screen your people for religious fanaticism next time. Well, well the technology's yeah, good. And maybe train the people that are going to go on the ship to, you know, be specifically be yeah. explorers and not construction workers. And there you go. And basically guys who have a little bit of, of book learning under their belts. And uh, he, they're in space. It's like, yeah, sure, why not? Let's put them up there. Yeah. It's good enough. We're off. We're off. Did you know that the other thing that's that's really poorly constructed about this film is the time. So we have a scene where they land. Emoto is talking about if we just had water, you know, we could we could grow these seeds I brought from Hawaii. <laughs> then the water starts pouring out of the ship because the general is sabotaging the ship. Right. So we go in. They have the fight. The general gets killed. They bury the general. Yep. Emoto goes over and grabs a handful of the still wet soil from under the ship, puts his seeds in it, puts that on top of the general's grave. Yes, sir. Okay. You know, he wanted it. He was planning on planting those on the moon. <laughs> but since they came to Mars, surprise trip to Mars, I brought the seeds anyway. Well, maybe he was thinking, you know, these would be really cool to, to grow back in Hawaii since I've taken them to the moon already. Yeah. No, Wait. he did say he was going to try to grow them in the soil. Grow them on the soil of the moon. In the moon. Okay. Yeah. He did say that. Well, I hope he but wasn't playing and taking his gloves off on the moon. Jeez. <laughs> so he he puts that on top of the general's grave, and then they go into conservation mode. They go through the the and they have the little speech about you know you're going to turn thirty before we leave, so it's a year to go. Yeah. On the day they take off. The seed finally sprouts. <laughs> yeah. Kind of a late bloomer there. That, that was definitely, it's a harsh condition. Growing yeah. season between planting and and reaping is five years. <laughs> yeah, there you <laughs> on go. Mars. Well, maybe it's because there's not much oxygen in the atmosphere, low air pressure. Could, it could and, be that. And just general lack of moisture. Yes. Well, it had all that moisture that was packed into the... the uh, the, the the mud that he put there. So, okay. 
So uh, Wiley Lake has uh-huh. a crater named after him on the moon. Yep. As, do, as does Bolstel. Uh-huh. Lay was uh, both studied to be a, a scientist, uh, astronomy, zoology, paleontology, and something else. Um, he he was had to escape. He was he was becoming influential in in rocketry, uh, and had to escape the Nazis in 1935. Yeah, with a forged travel letter that he wrote himself on company stationery, <laughs> got out of the country and made it to America. Um, and then in 1949, he started writing about cryptozoology. Yeah, yes, I only recently read about that in uh, looking up information about this. I didn't realize that he was interested in A that. Crack pot too? <laughs> well, yeah. well, I wouldn't. I don't know if it'd be crackpot. He was just looking for, you know, maybe there are dinosaurs that are still alive. Who what knows? is that? What is that thing called? I can never pronounce it. The Muhammad Mbenge, Muhammad Mbenge, the the one in Africa that. Uh, Yes, I know my cryptozoology, I admit it, but because John and I used to go to the bookstore and laugh at the loony book section and the people who were stopping at it. Yeah, it's true. True, we used to do that at lunch. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yep, uh, fine days, fine days. Fine days. Oh, look, a new David Icke book. <laughs> oh, it looks just like all the other ones. Wow. Published on a Commodore 64. Yeah, almost, yeah. Mokali Mamembe? Yeah, I know you're talking about. Something like that, yeah. It's the it's what people thought was an African brontosaur of some kind, uh, I think is what they were thinking. I believe he was the guy that actually uh, popularized that uh, that particular uh, myth. I'm not sure that, I don't know where he got the information, but it sounds like that's kind of where that sort of entered the consciousness. Okay. uh, And I can remember, I honestly can remember in fifth grade talking to my fifth grade teacher who was uh, right. uh, interested in science and you know it's like well, well why couldn't we why couldn't there be dinosaurs hidden somewhere in the more remote places so i mean the idea was firmly entrenched and that was his premise uh, of his book yeah what if so so I mean, i'm gonna say it's still kind of it, it's always disappointing though it's always disappointing when they, you know, go from their strength and then they kind of veer into the little more crazy stuff. But, yeah, well, it's at least he wasn't like talking about uh, the societies who live in the middle of the earth and stuff like that. Uh, no, at least there's that. I guess yeah. we could go with that. Probably if he lived longer, who knows? But, yeah, I don't uh, know, maybe. Yeah. Probably not. Chesley Bonstill? Yeah. Also an interesting guy, lived a long, long time. Yes, he did, yeah. His first, he was, he, I forgot what it went. He, something inspired him. Oh, yeah, he saw Saturn through a telescope. San Francisco is where he grew up. In 1905, he went home and he drew it, painted it, something. That work was destroyed in the 1906 San Francisco earthquake and the fires. I mean, that's how... That's how far back this guy goes. He died in the 80s. Yes. I, I watched a, a, a documentary on him a couple of years ago. Yeah, I I, uh, I thought he was from England, but I was surprised to find out he grew up in in uh, San Francisco. Cal- California, and, yeah. Uh, yeah, he was a commercial artist and kind of found, found his painter. niche as a matte painter for the, for doing movies and all sorts of other illustrations like that. And he's Including also a, a very... Uh, right. 
He's also a very accomplished uh, sculptor because a lot of his paintings, he would build dioramas of what he was yep. going to paint and use those as, as life models. So, you know, he would create, you know, moonscapes, which would be, you know, all sorts of craggy rocks and in large craters and stuff like that out of clay and paper mache. And then he would paint them in, in a, um, you know, on his, his canvas. And, you know, that was pretty impressive. And uh, just uh, Google out Saturn as seen from Titan, which is probably his yeah, most yes. famous work. And yep. you've seen it. You've yeah. seen it. Um, guaranteed. I mean, his work, his his piece, Conquest of Space. And if you're in science fiction, you have seen these. Yeah. <laughs> over the years. And it, it's, when worlds collide, War of the Worlds. Uh, yep, he's he worked on those. Sex works George on Mount, those. Yeah. Destination Moon. If you're a fan of that look, then definitely see this movie. You'll you'll enjoy it just for the the visuals. Yeah, um, a lot of people complain about some of the blue screen stuff, but fie on them, a fie on them. 1955 yeah, was... film looked pretty darn good. Blue screens back then were very difficult to do, yeah. and this movie had a lot of them. And uh uh-huh. There were a couple screw ups. You could, you know, definitely see stuff that looked like there were wires. There's one shot where the entire crew, while they're on Mars, disappears for a couple seconds uh, in an uh, obvious editing mistake. That's not really a special effect problem. That's an editing issue. But yeah, you know, uh, I thought they, they did had, a fairly. I thought they did a fairly good job of things like uh, the zero gravity as well. Well, yeah. Yeah, maybe maybe not so much the scene where Paul Drake uh, flies across from the the shuttle to the the wheel, but uh, you know, like when they're climbing up and down the ladders on the ship when they're in no gravity, it actually they've managed to achieve a look that doesn't look like they're normally climbing up or particularly going up, but down the ladders. I assume they're like pulling them as they're going up the ladders so that they can just you know use their hands. Yeah, they had something, some some lift assist that they had figured out that worked pretty well. Yeah, it was it was very smooth. It didn't look like they were doing having much uh, exertion going up and down that. Yeah, as long as you remain zipped into your shoes, your magnetic boots. They spent so much time and and effort developing this. Yeah, do you know how hard it was for us to come up with the idea of magnets? <laughs> yeah, so I had had the. Uh, and they had the experts scratching their heads for weeks. It yeah. can't be a coincidence that we developed magnetic boots about the same time we were going to go into space. That's got to be God's will. Yeah. Yep. There you go. <laughs> coincidence? I think not. Hi. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> um, let's see. We talked about the rotational gravity, the magnetic boots, the slap-in-place patches. Oh, yeah. Notice those. I like the sled. Yo, the the space taxi. Yeah, that was what they call it. Yes, yeah, that was definitely one of those things that that he painted that showed up in. uh, Oh, I I can't remember the name of the piece, but it's got the large Delta Wing spacecraft on one side, and then the other side is uh, uh, another spacecraft, and you see guys jetting around on these little uh, taxis uh, between like large fabrication. Yeah, um, kiddings. Uh, yeah, really cool stuff. Uh, there was the also rope. there was also a uh, a bunch of model kits made in the 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 fifties, and uh, 
reissued in the 70s, and I had a bunch of those when I was a kid. And I love putting those together. Yeah. You know, the spaceships with the big spheres on them or the large delta oh, yeah. wings. Yeah. Yep. So the last thing I have on my list is just a, a note that their orbit is a thousand miles out. And yeah. that actually doesn't sound so bad. I thought, gosh, that's a long way out because Earth's orbit isn't that, you know, the ISS is 254 miles up. Yep. It turns out. So, but I was looking through that and it's like low Earth orbit is considered 100 to 1200 miles. Yeah. There's just kind of in the, the not quite end of near Earth's orbit. Yeah. So I, you know, they may have just pulled that number out of somewhere, but I'm guessing that probably was what they were thinking at the time. At two hours, I don't, I didn't work that one out. I didn't try to work that one out, but I think the ISS is what, 94 minutes? Uh, that sounds about right. I was going to say, it I, seems to me like most of the things in that area are around 90 minutes. So would three times further out be two hours or would, or could they just simply be traveling a lot faster? No, two hours is yeah. about a thousand to 1200 miles. So yeah, that's correct. Okay. Yep. So they, they got it. All right, cool. So uh -huh. at least somebody did the math. Yeah. I love that, it when that... they do the math. <laughs> yes. Rightly. <laughs> yes. Yeah, that stuff, I think they worked that out quite a long time ago. Um, you know, the, the orbits that you'd have to get, the amount of time it would take. So th those sorts of things were definitely known in the 50s. Do you have anything else on this? Nope. No, I don't. That's about it. Oh, other than uh, if you're in the military, don't serve with your father. Yeah, that does seem like a really... That really does not... That does end well idea yeah well it ended okay for the captain but oh there yeah. is one thing that i totally missed in my notes but they didn't spare on the movie blood did they no no that was uh that would have been kind of alarming for the the 50s i believe because i don't think you know i think when somebody got shot back then they just kind of clutched their chest and fell over and that was it you didn't see yeah, any well blood. the captain got shot and all he had was a little red spot but oh, in other movies in this one, though, no, they 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 probably used, you know, maybe a gallon of blood. Holy cow, that's so much. Yes. Oh, if you've not seen it, the opening, the launch, it's not really a launch per se, the, the start of the journey, they accelerate out. And I'm guessing they're using the air jet thing to achieve that look, although they did a pretty good job of it. Yes. From distance for a couple of the shots. But... uh you know, that one wasn't too bad, but uh, Maloney, who is down below, when they pull him up because he wasn't properly secured, he's bleeding out of the his mouth and, hey, and hey, his he nose. Banged his head up pretty good, too. And then later in the film, when they take off from Mars, yes, when they take off from Mars and they're not in their crash couches, they're all, the captain's cut up bad. They're bleeding from their eyes. They're bleeding from their ears. They're bleeding from yeah. Oh, yeah. They wow. Did not fare okay, well. guys. They did not fare well. But of course, no one fared worse than Fodor, <laughs> whose inside of his space helmet was yes. red. Yes, and if you notice, in a shot that doesn't make any sense because he couldn't be that close to it, close to the spacecraft, yep. the, the observation dome is covered with blood splatters. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, there's a couple of, 
somewhere on the fins too. There's a blood spatter. Yeah. Wow. It was, it was like, wow. Okay. I was kind of hoping this, that's not a nice thing to say. I was kind of hoping they just leave <laughs> him out there, you know, bring him along with him to Mars. But it was giving Siegel the freak out. No, he would have arrived at Mars too because the amount of Delta V that was imparted by the uh, general pushing him towards the sun, I don't think that would really cause him to go too far away from the uh, uh, the main spacecraft. Uh, true. All right. Well, we are uh, likely to, uh, you know, take a little bit of a, a detour here and look at uh, some of the other films of George Powell. This film was a flop Yep, from uh, the, the time and uh, kind of impacted some stuff that, uh, that, that didn't happen. But uh, George Powell also did uh, War of Worlds, uh, When Worlds Collide. Uh, Destination Moon was his too, right? I think it was. Yes. And I feel like there might be one more. We'll probably take a look at all those just to uh, look at this particular era of of obviously somebody in George Powell that was interested in this. You know, he, he must have had, I haven't read anything about it, but I mean, he must have had some interest in this for him to keep coming back to this kind of production. So the least we can do is to take a look at, uh, look at his works there. Mm-hmm. Yep. Should be fun. John, thank you for joining me. Oh, you're welcome. And uh, surprise, we're going to Mars tomorrow. Oh, no. Oh, okay. Well, uh, I better go uh, pack a lunch. Uh, yeah, there you go. Get, get some pills. Um, yes. And, uh, listeners, I hope you'll join us all again next time on Fusion Patrol. You've been listening to Fusion Patrol. Thanks for listening. If you've enjoyed this episode, we hope you'll consider supporting us at buymeacoffee.com slash fusionpatrol or patreon.com slash fusionpatrol. For our monthly Patreon subscribers, we're currently running a special series on Babylon 5. Come join the conversation in the comments section of this episode at fusionpatrol.com. You'll also find there over a decade of past episodes. You can find some of our other works at soundcloud.com slash fusionpatrol. Our music is Fight the Future by Amber Wolf. This has been a Lone Locust production. On the next episode of Fusion Patrol, we'll be looking at the Star Hunter Redux episode, The Air and the Spare. That's the one where Marcus discovers he has an identical twin brother he knew nothing about, and that they look nothing alike. Join the conversation on Fusion Patrol. Also, don't forget that between now and April 7th, 2023, over at SoundCloud.com slash Fusion Patrol, we're running our special series on Star Trek Strange New Worlds. Check it out.